Wild Common Podcast. This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our products should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to another episode of the Wild Common Podcast. This is Andy Barton, the host, founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits. Today is June 14th, 2020. I've got a, a couple podcasts queued up here, and I've just sort of been sitting on them these last two weeks, uh, feeling like I need to not clog everybody's attention and everybody's feeds when there are more important things going on in the world, specifically peaceful protests, riots, and the racial tensions that we're experiencing as a nation. I'm going to slowly start releasing episodes again, starting today with my friend Gina Ray Lacerva. She's a writer and an anthropologist who searches for wild foods and reveals what we lose in a world where wildness itself is misunderstood, commodified, and hotly pursued. She holds degrees from Yale, University of Cambridge, and Vassar, and we're really diving into her new book called Feasting Wild. It's gotten positive reviews in the New York Times, Amazon, Outside Magazine, many others. For most of human history, we hunted and gathered. Today, most people will never eat anything undomesticated, and yet the desire to eat wild has never been stronger. To understand this trend, Gina forages for wild onions in a Danish cemetery, tracks the trade of illegal bushmeat in the Democratic Republic of Congo to Europe, sips bird's nest soup in Borneo, and smuggles Swedish moose meat back home in her suitcase. Feasting Wild is a remarkable celebration of biodiversity, indigenous knowledge, and women's knowledge, and our connection to nature and delicious flavors around the world. I hope you enjoy this episode with Gina Ray Lacerva. All right, Gina Ray Lacerva, welcome to the show. Thank you. Congratulations, you've, uh, you've officially launched your book, Feasting Wild. Yes, it just came out on Tuesday, so it's been um, a totally wild experience seeing it out in the world. Yeah, full whirlwind. Uh, absolutely, it's. I've been working on it for you know over six and a half years, so to finally see it as an object on you know people's coffee tables and bookshelves is is pretty amazing. And uh, we were speaking briefly before I hit record. Um, so far, I've seen you know, a lot of positive reviews online, as well as endorsements from uh, very well-known authors. How does that feel to have that sort of validation? Um, you know, your baby's now out in the world and being acknowledged. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I started this book, I thought nobody was going to read it um, because it just seemed kind of like a niche topic. It's, you know, it's about wild food and hunting and gathering. And people would ask me, what are you writing a book about? You know, and I, I'd say hunting and gathering in there to kind of give me these weird looks. So I really didn't think that it would have the reach, but um, yeah, the New York times recently picked it as one of their summer reading list recommendations and Michael Pollan tweeted about it. And it's just been really incredible to see um, there's a review in outside magazine, a really thoughtful review. So um, yeah, I'm kind of just blown away actually by the response. Um, yeah, it's, I, been, it's been really amazing. I saw, um, Elizabeth Colbert, who's the 
author of The Sixth Extinction, um, which was a New York Times bestseller, she wrote, it's a memorable genre-defying work that blends anthropology and adventure. I mean, that just sounds badass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, if Elizabeth Colbert, you know, calls it genre-defying and, and all of that, then you you know you're doing something right. Yeah, so give us um, some, some background um, and context, at least, before we get into the conversation so we know where you're coming from and 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 sort of how you got here um, in terms of being an environmental anthropologist as well as a geographer. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess my background is really in geology and geography. Um, we don't have a ton of geography in this country. It's almost more like an old school British, you know, academic thing to study or something. But um, in undergraduate, I, I was really interested in the ways that human and natural systems um intersect and interact and the ways that culture impacts nature and nature impacts culture and that sort of, you know, conversation between those two things. So I actually studied natural disasters for a really long time. That was, that was where my academic work um, brought me. So I went to Indonesia after the tsunami and was recording um, the various oral history, you know, traditions there that actually saved people during the tsunami because they had grown up hearing these stories about brides getting washed up into the hills and they knew if the earth shaked, you know, shook that you could, you needed to run up to higher elevation. Um, so that was, that's really my background. And I decided to write a book when I turned 30, kind of as an experiment. Um, and I really thought it was going to be about some sort of natural disaster. And then I just got kind of intrigued by the food world um, and, and pulled into that. And so that this book kind of evolved out of that background. And and so you write, essentially in the introduction, you write, quote, what does it mean to eat wild food or the closest thing to it in a world so thoroughly dominated by humans, end quote? Where where did that fascination begin? Like, wh- where was that seed planted? Yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of a few things. Um, you know, I grew up in, in New Mexico, and so I have a fair number of friends who are, um, you know, either duck hunters or elk hunters. Um, you know, grew up fishing a little bit. Um, so that was kind of always around me was that way of interacting with the natural world. Um, and then I went to the East coast for grad school and, you know, I just started seeing kind of how fascinated people were by, by, you know, someone who might make their own bow and arrow and go out and hunt, hunt an elk or something. And it, it made me start really thinking about like, where, what is this fascination, particularly at a moment when, you know, all the news coming out of the environmental world is just kind of doom and gloom. Um, you know, academics like to talk about the Anthropocene, sort of this idea that there is no wild place left anymore because humans, whether through climate or the resource cycle, have just completely altered the natural world. Um, so it just made me start thinking about, like, what does wild food even mean in this in this world where, you know, um, I was listening to your most recent episode and rivers no longer even reach the seas that they're meant to, to land in, you know, so what is, what is wild food in that kind of world? And then I think from a very like basic standpoint, I also was curious about, you know, you go to the grocery store and um, wild fish, wild caught fish is so much more expensive than farm raised fish. And, and so that made me really curious too, like this thing that for most of our history as humans was just free for the taking wild foods out there in the, in the, the natural world is now suddenly something that you kind of have to have money to be able to afford. And that reversal from sort of subsistence to luxury was really fascinating to me. 
And so I have two two specific questions I'd like to tease out of what you've just said. Um, we'll, we'll revisit the socioeconomic and, in my mind, race um, issue related to sort of the um, the harvest of wild foods second. But first, um, can you talk about the farming of wild? Um, you know, some of these farmed species end up, um, or rather, I'll ask the question, can some of these farm species end up becoming invasive and taking over native populations? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen that a lot with some farmed um, raised salmon is that the the varieties that we're raising in um, in uh, in captivity are actually like often can outcompete the native salmon. And if they escape from their enclosures, um, then you end up having an issue with that. So, yeah, I think it's um, there's a chapter in my book that looks a bit at, at at seafood and kind of trying to tease out what is actually more ethical. Is it more ethical to eat wild caught fish or to eat farm raised fish given all of these different um, complexities to it? Um, you know, I mean, most of our agricultural crops were once wild varieties. So we, we obviously have a very long history of taking things that we liked in the wild and then tweaking them to be, you know, more flavorful or brighter or more nutritious or, you know, something like that. Um, and then those those species can kind of escape back. I was on a hike recently in the mountains and came across an apple tree and it and it makes you realize, you know, that humans have been in these areas for a long time, um, even if it feels very wild now. You know, those sort of relics of our of our past, either someone threw out an apple or someone was actually living there at some point. And, you know, what about like the toxins in these farm-raised salmon. I mean, they're not quite as resilient as wild-caught salmon that have evolved over, you know, tens of thousands of years. You know, I saw online that farm-raised salmon are more likely to have wild, or sorry, farm-raised salmon are more likely to contain contaminants, uh, PCBs yeah. and, and leads, whereas wild, wild-caught wild salmon has a healthier ratio of anti-inflammatory fats, uh, which is omega-3s and omega-6s as well as just a better nutritional profile. Um, can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we see this kind of over and over again with wild foods that um, actually, because these creatures are living out free, roaming around, um, eating lots of different things, that they they actually are much healthier, both for themselves and for us in terms of consuming them. Um, if you think about game animals that are living most of their lives up in the mountains um, or, you know, the prairies versus an industrial kind of feedlot, of course, that animal that's out in the wild is going to be healthier. And I think in the case of salmon, a lot of times they actually add food coloring to the food that the salmon is eating in order to get that pink color. Whereas out in nature, that pink color comes, you know, naturally from what the salmon are eating. Um, So, yeah, and I think over and over, I mean, even back into the 1800s, people were aware of this idea that sort of wild animals were um, more robust and and sort of healthier than their domesticated counterparts. So I think it's, it's an idea that's been around a long time um, and makes sense just kind of from like an intuitive sense that these creatures that are out kind of living, you know, by their own uh, experience out in, out in the wild are going to be healthier than something that's like confined to a cage, (laughs) you know, it's the same for people probably. And then essentially, I mean, we're, we're farming these things for scale and and so how do we address some of the problems Absolutely. of scale when we get to wild food? Does that make it less wild? Yeah, I mean, one of the issues with wild food and part of why I think it's 
increasingly becoming kind of a rare luxury is that idea of abundance. So in natural systems, you tend to have, um, you know, increased biodiversity. So you have a lot of different creatures living in an area, but reduced abundance of any one of those creatures. Um, that's not always the case. I mean, if you think about the the herds of buffalo that used to roam on the prairies in the U.S., I mean, there was just massive, massive amounts. There's a section in my book that talks about the number of sea turtles, you know, back when Columbus um, reached the the Americas, there was 90 million sea turtles in the ocean. And I mean, it's like hard for us to wrap our heads around that amount of wild beasts out there now because you know when we when we look at the ocean it doesn't seem to have that abundance anymore um but i think you're right i mean we have really shifted kind of the natural world to be focused on domesticated animals so you know there's something like a hundred thousand house cats in the world for every tiger in the wild so we've kind of shifted that evolution towards these domesticated animals being more abundant than the wild species um and yeah, and it makes it, I think you're right, like raising, raising animals for that domestication, for that efficiency really changes, you know, a lot of um, aspects of the, of the food, really, like you're raising it for a mass market instead of it existing within an ecosystem. And after writing the book, you know, and having six years of insight or more, how do you now define wild food? <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, I, I love having this debate with people because you look at, you know, you go up in the mountains and you're like, this is clearly more of a wild place than the strip mall, you know, down the street from my house, right? Like there's something very different about both of these places. But on another philosophical level, like they both have human impacts. They're both, um, you know, very much part of this larger this larger natural system. I mean, we are wild nature, right? Like we are part of this much larger ecology, even though we figured out how to make, you know, couches and, and airplanes and all these other crazy inventions, like we're still part of this wild nature. Um, so I think what I come to is sort of, there's a spectrum of wildness and wild nature out there. And, you know, humans aren't inherently destructive. There's, there's certain places um, like, I think it's central park, you know, has more bird, species in Central Park than you would just find in a sort of quote unquote native habitat in New York State. And and so there's there's ways that humans actually can increase biodiversity um, you know, in these places. And and so I find that kind of stuff really fascinating too. So it's like what metrics do we actually use to define what is wild or what is pristine? Um, you know, what are we actually going for? Is it some place that's never been touched? And and you know, there's a there's a big debate about that, too, in terms of like national parks. Should we be going in and taking out invasive species in order to sort of preserve an ecosystem as it were, you know, 100 years ago, or is actually allowing those native species, which those invasive species, which might be, you know, better adapted to climate change or various things like that, allowing them to kind of create a new ecology? Is that actually a better way of managing these wild spaces? So, yeah, there's a lot to say about it. I think it's a really fascinating topic. And so how do you sort of, you know, I want to come back to the idea of this, the socioeconomic status and race. Um, and, and to get there, I, I wanted to maybe discuss, like, how do you balance the idea of hunting native resources for sustenance and conservation, where uh, potentially, say, a Westerner would come in and say, you can't hunt these animals, they need to be conserved. Uh, whereas the person who 
lives on the land, you know, that's their backyard and that's what they use for food. Um, how do you totally. find a balance there? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the issues that I bring up a lot in the book. Um, you know, I think it's really hard as conservationists to kind of look at the the dirty side of our history. But, you know, when we first created national parks in this country, it was through kicking Native Americans off of their land in order to, you know, create these sort of eco parks for white people to go and enjoy and recreate in. Um, and one way that we really decimated the Native American population in this country was by, um, you know, forcing them off their land and then reducing their access to the wild foods that sustain them. So, you know, often in the name of conservation. So it's it's really important that we recognize that history as we move forward. Um, and this comes up a lot in, you know, I did a lot of research in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, the Congo Basin is, you know, one of the most amazing sort of uh, tropical forests that we have in the world. And it's been really threatened by the wild meat trade for a lot of years. I mean, conservationists have been trying to stop the wild meat trade, you know, for 50 years or so. Um, at the same time, people are living there, they're subsisting on this meat, and they really have no other, you know, opportunities either to get cash, which is needed for things like hospital bills and schools, um, fees, you know, or they have no other livelihoods, no other source of domesticated meat. So it, it becomes an incredibly complicated situation um, where, you know, and then layer onto that, you know, the background of colonialism and sort of all the horrible things that have been done um, in the name of that over the years. So, you know, I, I don't think I come to like any sort of um, really obvious answer for what we need to be doing, but it's so important um, as we go into this stuff to, to really look at the history of things and understand where people are coming from. And why, you know, someone is going to feel resentful towards a Western conservationist coming in and saying, you need to stop eating these animals, right? You know, because I think everyone, I mean, everyone wants to conserve these things. Even the hunters that I talked to and in the Congo, they were like, conservation is a good thing. You know, they recognize that their livelihoods and their, you know, food source is threatened by overhunting and is threatened by some of these same factors that Western conservationists are trying to um, address. So, you know, it's really, I think it's coming from that common ground of of wanting to save these animals for you know everybody and for the animals themselves you know yet at, at the same time race does play a role and there are stereotypes being reinforced and you know there's a quote if a white man kills a wild animal and eats it we call it hunting game if a black man kills a wild animal and eats it we call it bushmeat poaching Right, right. So that was a lot of what I, you know, wanted to get into with this book is that there's so many racist conceptions around, you know, African people eating wild animals that we we don't even think about it in the same way in this country. If someone goes out hunting, you know, they're just going out either for recreation or sport hunting or to, you know, serve venison to their families. You know, we we associate it in the West with sort of and I talk about this in the book as well, like the long history of kings protecting forests in order to have access to the game animals that they would serve at their feasts. And, you know, the, like the larger game animal that you could serve at your banquet, the kind of more powerful you were, you were seen as being. Um, but because of a history of colonialism and sort of the way that Western conservation um, emerged at a time when there was a lot of racism in this country as well. I mean, there, there was these quotes I was reading about um, the, the, game killing, I think it was the bird killing foreigners. So it was talking about how Italian immigrants in the U S in the early 1900s would eat game birds 
uh, sorry, like songbirds, um, because it was part of their cultural tradition. And oftentimes it was an act of poverty and conservationists are really up in arms about this, you know, so there's these like, um, cartoons about the, the songbird killing foreigners and these sort of like grotesque depictions of Italians eating songbirds. Um, so you, you can see, you know, even in our country, that sort of background to a lot of these things um, often came out of these, these racist conceptions or had that, that racist idea layered on. Um, so, yeah, so in Africa, um, in the Congo, this is a huge issue in terms of, you know, people's perception of sort of the savagery of eating this food. But really, for, for many Congolese, and again, not all Congolese eat game meat, just like not all Americans do, but for many Congolese, game meat is, um, you know, it's like a, a food of celebration. It was, it's like we eat turkey at Thanksgiving, you know, they eat it at weddings and, and things like that. Um, so I really wanted to try and, you know, be as non-judgmental as I possibly could at, while also recognizing my own cultural lens and going into this research. And as an anthropologist presenting facts. Yeah. And, and I think one of the interesting things, I mean, anthropology has its own dark history. I mean, I don't think we're, we're kind of in this moment where like everything you look into, you're like, well, shit, that was fucked up too. You know? So I, I think it's a really interesting moment when we're sort of uncovering all this stuff, but um, anthropology has its own problems in terms of like outsiders coming in and interpreting and thinking that, you know, they're gathering the facts and really they just have their own perceptions of what they're seeing. So that was important for me in this book too, to kind of, um, experiment with that, that counter narrative of like, who am I to actually be, you know, researching this and, and asking these questions and what's my own kind of cultural baggage coming into seeing this and am I exoticizing my subjects by accident, you know? So, um, you know, it was important for me to be as neutral as I could and as self-aware as to that sort of background as well. But do you think it's reasonable that the alarm is, uh, rang as it were, uh, you know, when some of these species are endangered, I mean, somebody has to bring it up, Absolutely. say like the manta yeah. ray gills in Sri Lanka or shark fin soup in China, you know, these, these have been known, um, to be medicinal and quote wild. Um, but at some point, you know, you need to step in and say, well, look, like they're also endangered. A hundred percent. And I don't think culture is ever like a good enough excuse to just say, well, it's in their culture, so it's okay. You know, um, I think we see this with like a lot of different cultural practices, particularly like in the gender space of certain things that are done in other cultures that, you know, Westerners might find really grotesque, but also maybe shouldn't happen. I mean, I'm kind of thinking like genital mutilation in certain countries, um, so, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there's no doubt that the wild meat trade, um, you know, which a lot of the animals in Congo are are shipped all over the world. So it's it's beyond just subsistence at this point. It's become um, a luxury trade, a trade that's tied into a lot of, um, you know, black markets, um, international crime syndicates. There's a whole lot of like arms trade going on with a lot of these issues. And that's one of the reasons that conservationists find it so difficult to stop is because it's not just about you know, the poor local person needing to kill an antelope once in a while to feed their family. It's really become this like multi-billion dollar industry that's global. And that's often driven by people who are eating it, as you said, uh, you know, as a sort of medicinal thing or, um, you know, pangolin now we've seen as like the most trafficked animal in the world. And the idea is that the scales have medicinal value, um, you know, and potentially was the source of COVID, although we don't know yet. 
Um, and yet, ironically, you know, I've heard that there's rumors that the scales of pangolin actually help cure COVID. So, you know, I don't think we can use culture just as an excuse. I think it's important to recognize it, particularly because it's going to help us to change some of these practices, right? Um, so if we can understand, like, the real deep cultural roots as to why people are eating these foods, then we have a better chance of, you know, hopefully um, through education and whatnot, you know, changing hearts and minds in a way, just as we've seen in this country with, you know, people wanting to eat um, sort of free range chicken and things like that. Like as we learn more about how our food is, is produced, we might make those choices. But again, back to the sort of um, economic factor, like you have to have, you know, a free range chicken costs more money than an industrial chicken. And so how do we kind of bring the system out of some beyond something that's just available to sort of environmentally elite people who can, you know, have the, have the money to, uh, to pay for something that's less destructive, if that makes sense. Well, and then you read like other vegetarian fed hens. Meanwhile, like when right. I see hens, they're out eating grubs and insects and worms. <laughs> it's like <laughs> right. we're, we're feeding them right. like I mean, corn, GMO corn, right? Yeah. So it's, it's definitely so complicated. I mean, Man, there was definitely moments working on this book where I'm like, it's too complicated. I don't know what the answer is, you know. But um, but I think it's it's really fascinating when you start digging into the stuff to see, like like you're saying, how it all kind of intersects with race, history, economics, all of that. So I, I really did want to bring wild food kind of into that realm where you you look at it and you're like, oh, that's not just like a deer running wild. It's actually like a symbol of like ancient kings and suburbanization and all these different, you know, things that you would kind of never connect to this, this creature. Yeah. Where I grew up, you know, back East in New Jersey of all places, there's, you know, there's so many deer. Um, yeah. Because they aren't being culled down. They aren't <laughs> being hunted. You know, now the deer are getting sick because of ticks, yada, yada. It's like um, the ecosystem is out of balance in certain areas. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, the deer, it's fascinating because they were kind of, white-tailed deer were on the brink of disappearing in the United States, you know, partially for meat and partially because of their hides. And and now they're almost like a pest, right? Like, we have way too many of them. They're destroying gardens and spreading Lyme disease. So, um, you know, I think that story is fascinating, too, in just the ways that human appetites can, you know, nearly decimate something. And then 100 years later, it's it's like we stopped eating venison and now deer are everywhere. So, you know, we're, we're tied into that ecology so much, whether we think about it or not. So do you think, um, you know, I don't want to just skip over the fact that there's a global pandemic here that's being pegged on wild food. Um, you know, how, how can you address that as an author? How does your book, um, help educate somebody who, who might just sort of turn their nose at the idea of wild food? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think um, it's been a really interesting moment to be putting out this book, um, given given the ties to wild food with, with the pandemic. Um, you know, one thing that I talk about a lot or have been talking about lately is sort of the, you know, wild food isn't inherently dangerous, but the structures, the systems that we have around the um, distribution and hunting of that wild food ha are dangerous. So, I often liken it to like when the first agricultural cities arose in the Fertile Crescent, 
suddenly you had all these people living together. You had domesticated animals, you had rats and pigeons and, you know, all kinds of different creatures, not pigeons, sparrows. Um, but you had all these creatures kind of living together in a new, you know, what I consider a new ecological configuration. So these kind of new relationships happening. And that led to the rise of things like the bubonic plague, like smallpox, like, you know, so all these diseases that we didn't have before kind of arose out of this agricultural configuration. And the same thing is happening today with diseases like COVID. Um, you know, you I didn't go to any of these wet markets in China, but you essentially have animals from, you know, forests of Southeast Asia, from the forests of, of Africa, and you have them, you know, stacked in cages on top of each other. The animals are terrified and stressed out, and so their immune systems are down. And so the likelihood of these diseases passing you know, between all these animals is so much higher than it is just normally in the forest. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is that the destruction of forest means that these animals that are sick, that we might not come into contact with ever, are suddenly, you know, at the human interface and more likely to pass diseases. So there's been some really interesting work looking at um, fruit bats and how in places where agricultural intensity is occurring, so you're, you're chopping down more forest to grow crops, you're finding more of these diseases like Nipah emerging because the fruit bats are actually, you know, searching out human um, or orchards or crop areas in order to find food. And then they're interacting with things like pigs. And then those pigs are, you know, getting infected. And so it just becomes this whole new ec ecology, essentially. Um, and then I think the third thing is that we're seeing, uh, maybe it's not third, I don't know what number I'm up to, but, um, you know, the rise of megacities. So we now have cities where, you know, tens of millions of people live. And so as we've seen in places like New York, you know, these kinds of viruses just um, travel so much faster than they would have, you know, in the past, if someone got sick, maybe they would have given it to their little village, but we now live in this huge global interconnected world. Um, and so it's just really changed disease ecology. And then if I can add another one, you know, climate change is really started to impact things. So now we're seeing like West Nile virus up in New York state and, and places that you would never expect to have these diseases. Um, and so I think we're kind of in for a wild ride. I mean, if I would predict anything, it would be that these sort of pandemic shocks are going to happen more frequently um, just based on all these factors that I've said, you know, which, which really, again, isn't to demonize wild food, but to really put it within this larger global economic context that we're living in. Well, I think that's sort of the, the dichotomy. It's such a polarizing topic. It's either a delicacy in yeah. Western culture, like morels or chanterelles, mushrooms, totally. or it's this underground scrap that's seen as like, uh, you know, a third world country bushmeat, right? It's right, like, like there's no Eric. middle. Yeah, yeah, there's no middle ground. Um, yeah. And through the lens of Western yeah, culture, it, it, it really becomes sort of this this revered thing. And, you know, uh, what is it? The truffles, you know, and there's like truffle everything, mm -hmm. truffle fries, truffle this, truffle sure, that, like truffle ramps, cheese. You know, yeah. they're everywhere. Yeah. No, I think that's such an interesting point because I think it, part of what I wanted to do when I started re researching this book was kind of use wild food as a way to talk about our relationship to wild nature. And I think that's very true um, here as well, you know, in terms of that dichotomy of like, we look at wild nature and it's this like pristine sort of godly place that we go out to recreate in and find spiritual salvation. And, you know, it's like must be protected. And then in other places where people are sort of relying on 
what wild nature is providing in like a much more direct visceral way that wild nature can be like terrifying and kind of be this thing that we need to, you know, dominate and control. And, and really it's like, we're up in a fight against it. So I think that sort of, you know, is embodied in the same thing with the food. It's like wild nature is this like barbaric territory, but also wild nature is this sort of, you know, elevated spiritual territory. Yeah. Essentially. I mean, we're a part of it as opposed to being separate. And we're from part it. of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're actually somewhere in the middle, you know, it's like, the sort of angel and devil on both of our shoulders. Like we're, we're somehow, you know, all of that in terms of wild nature. Well, I want to give you, uh, you know, sort of the, the mic to, uh, share a couple examples out of your book. Um, you know, I don't want to want it to sound like it's all doom and gloom and, uh, polarizing, you know, it, it seems like you had amazing adventures and, um, you know, one place was Copenhagen. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so I start the book out um, getting to eat at Noma, which is at one point um, was sort of the the best restaurant in the world, um, and you know had this amazing twenty course meal with all of these different you know foraged flavors and and really incredible food. I mean, it's just it's total artistry. Um, so that was one of the most amazing meals. And then sort of towards the end of the book, I I kind of have like a parallel meal um, in the this remote roadless village in the Borneo Highland mountains. Um, and there were, you know, eating wild boar and, and foraged ginger flowers. And um, so for me, that was like a really kind of nice way to, to begin and end the book of these, these two meals that were very similar and sort of the experience of really feeling like you're connecting to this, these incredible flavors that mother earth provides. Um, and then also kind of the differences between sitting down and eating in a Michelin starred restaurant versus having spent the day in the rice fields and gathering the food on the way home. Um, but yeah, I mean, this book, that was another thing I had a friend recently ask, you know, like, what is the role of the journalist in terms of hope, right? Like, what is our role as writers, as storytellers, you know, for you as a photographer um, of putting out these stories of hope about the environment? Because I think we need those in order to kind of, you know, love the wild back into existence and and come to it from a place of of excitement and, you know, feasting in this case, um, because I think the doom and gloom can really just knock you down. And then you're sort of like, what's the point? It's all fucked. Right. So, so I really did try and balance that in this book of sort of, yes, like we're living through the, you know, a sixth extinction, mass extinction shit is dire out there. Um, but there's also these really beautiful moments and beautiful experiences of conservation that are happening, um, and, and wanting to highlight those as well, you know, in terms of our connection to this gorgeous planet, cause it's fucking gorgeous planet, you know, like I feel grateful to be alive on this configuration of soil and molecules every day. And I, I think there's also an opportunity to share stories about places, um, consumer goods and food that not only, you know, help the native environment, um, but may actually be beneficial to um, the local biodiversity, may be supporting mm-hmm. local economies uh, with native resources. I mean, you know, I've, I've explored a couple jobs and stories um, that do specifically just that. And uh, I think those stories need to be told. I agree. Absolutely. I recently had the pleasure of meeting a um, flower miller up in the Pacific Northwest or e-meeting, virtually meeting um, in this pandemic time. But, you know, his mill 
works with farmers to grow, you know, um, artisanal varieties of wheat that are specifically grown for flavor or for their ecological benefits to the soil. Um, you know, all of their farms have really strict kind of um, environmental rules and, and, you know, even to the point where some of the acreage is, is for conservation. Um, and then they're really a community project. So that mill is supporting a whole little town in an area that was having economic depression. So I love stories like that, that, you know, and again, it's about, it's part of why we have to understand the culture and the history and the economics and the racism and the politics behind all of this stuff is so that we can start building these kinds of businesses that are, you know, um, what do they call it? The triple bottom line, people, profits, and planet. Um, and I think what gets hard is when that runs up against sort of this massive capitalist system that has all of these things just like really ingrained. You know, I think of it often as like a highway, like part of why we have cars is because those highways are there and it's really hard to change them once they've been built, right? Like we get sort of locked into these ways of being. Um, and so how do you create businesses or, you know, how do you, how, how do we start changing our food system given all these different ways that like, you know, we have these lock-ins of commodity crops and, you know, large scale um, industrialized agriculture that's like on the stock market and, you know, tied into these global international flows of money and people and, you know, it gets very complicated. But I think um, part of what is exciting in this moment in the world is that we are seeing more and more of these kind of small businesses um, emerging that really care about all aspects, not just making money. As well as sort of at least, you know, locally here um, in in the United States, I can't speak for other countries, but there's not just a a, a building, but it's like a remodel of uh, mm -hmm. the old system, like the acknowledgement that wasn't working at scale, and we need to do something different. You know, one easy example would be um, undocumented farm workers in California who were previously given zero benefits, support, health care, fair pay, and now they're deemed essential workers. You're like, just shaking your right. head. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and like, so I, how can... there is going to be sort of a, um, an overhaul as we go, um, into the future here about, you know, the United States food system and reliance on other countries and foreign labor. And, you know, I know Germany is the same way with um, labor from Eastern Europe. Some German farmers flew in uh, workers on helicopters to like work wow. fields. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if anything, this pandemic has really shown a lot of the cracks in our food system. You know, it's been amazing to see all of these small scale farmers just thriving during this period. I mean, there's been tons of articles about how all these little little farms are just doing so well while the bigger companies are actually having to destroy food because their distribution networks got screwed up or, you know, they're, they're, yeah. I mean, that's been breaking my heart to see these, you know, the food getting, getting wasted while so many people are going hungry during this thing. So I do think that this is going to be a really good opportunity for us to continue looking at, you know, how do we build local small scale resilience? And I think your question of scale is so interesting, right? Because a lot of these sort of, alternative ways of doing things work really well on a small scale. And then as soon as you try and scale them, I mean, that's why we have industrial agriculture is because that's what works at scale, right? Like that's how you have, you need uniformity of product and you need these like efficient transport methods. 
But then when something like a pandemic hits, you no longer have op- opportunities of what to do with those pigs that you're no longer able to sell to your you know, restaurants or whatever. But the small farmer down the road, he's got plenty of customers for his pigs, right? So I think, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see how we take this crisis and transform it into something that's actually to be a positive. I mean, I, I think it'll be a shift towards more localized economies with, like you said, less dependence on supply chains. Yeah. I mean, I know uh, myself, neighbors, family members, other people um, who have, you know, a little patch of a yard uh, or a big patch of a yard, depending on their situation, are putting in uh, garden boxes. And, you know, it's kind of a no brainer. It's like, well, throw some seeds in the dirt. Let's go. Yeah, no, I love I love that people are doing that. I worry a little bit for like all these backyard chickens when people go back to work and they're like, shit, what do I do with all these chickens, you know, but, um, but I think it's, it's been really great. And I mean, I've had some wonderful interactions. I like, uh, bought, bought a bunch of eggs from a farm down um, about an hour from here. They normally sell to restaurants, but now they were selling directly to people. And then I met another woman and we traded, you know, a dozen eggs for five pounds of flour because she had bought a bunch of flour. So I, you know, I love that this is also kind of bringing up this new way of interacting with people around food in terms of like a bit of like a barter economy or, you know, just being more aware. And then I think in terms of foraging too, you know, part of why I think people are excited about my book and it's not a how-to manual, but it is, you know, it is recognizing that there are so many more things to eat out there than we normally you know, access now. I mean, humans used to use 30,000 different kinds of plants for either food or medicine. And now our diets, 60% of our diets primarily come from three, right? So like that is a huge reduction in terms of kind of the edible diversity that's out there. And so I'm also loving watching people be like, oh, this dandelion, like this isn't a weed. This is actually like a delicious, you know, green that I can saute with my eggs in the morning and it's full of nutrients. And, um, you know, I was just going to pull it out of the ground anyway, because it was destroying my lawn or whatever, you know, now it's like, I think that's part of the work that we have to do too. You know, I'm sure with your, with your business as well, is like, how do we shift people's values to start seeing these things in a different way? So it's no longer a weed. It's now like an, an edible delicacy, right? Yeah. And I mean, the, the stuff that, um, at least the product that, you know, I'm procuring and selling, uh, the cleaner it is and the less manipulated it is, the better it is. Totally. You know, and that, that's from like, those are, those are blind taste tests with, you know, who've done over and over and over and over again. Like they, the, uh, sort of unmanipulated products consistently rate the best amongst, you know, the sea of options out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, going back to, you know, not to get too punny, but the sea, we're talking about salmon. I think anybody would pick a wild caught salmon over a farm raised just by taste alone, you know, and that same kind of thing. I mean, our taste buds are kind of inherently attuned to these sort of more wild, more unadulterated flavors, Um, you know, and we crave things like fat and sugar partially because those were really limiting in our diets as early humans. But we're really, you know, we were wired to have these kind of our brains light up when we taste this diversity of flavors and the nuance and the complexity that comes from these unadulterated flavors or these wild flavors. I mean, it just kind of like a form of biophilia. Like we just feel happier when we're consuming these kinds of things, just like we feel happier when we're out on a hike or something, you know? And part of that is also the mineral content, correct? I mean, um, 
Yeah. You know, can you talk a little bit about sort of people needing to take supplements now as a result of, you know, some of the yeah, food I not mean, being so, wild? So much of the wild food, like, has higher levels of these kind of micronutrients and vitamins, um, riboflavins, all these different things. You know, you can look at wild foods, and that's part of what we're kind of responding to on, on like, a subconscious level, I think, is that nutrients. And, you know, even organic food these days doesn't have the same nutrient quality because partially because the way that modern agriculture um, works, whether it's organic or not, is um, we're, we're almost like mining the soil, right? Like people talk about the idea that we only have, I think it's like 60 harvests left before we're sort of out of topsoil. So, so much of the way that we grow food these days doesn't actually put those nutrients back into the, into the soil. We we use like really high levels of fertilizer and things, but all of those micronutrients are not getting put back into the soil in the way that it might during, you know, in a natural ecosystem where you have all these different plants and microbes kind of existing together. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, people, even people who eat really healthy diets are now relying on vitamins because those nutrients just aren't in there. And then also some of the varieties that we grow of plants, you know, we've lost a lot of varieties heirloom varieties, um, what's called a landrace variety, which is a plant that sort of evolved in a location for over a hundred years. So it's really well adapted to that place. So like in New Mexico, we have all these chili landrace varieties that just, you know, they, they literally were grown in the same nook of the mountain for hundreds of years. And so they're really well adapted to the climate, to the light, you know, to the various aspects, um, amount of water. So we've lost a lot of those varieties as we've moved towards more large-scale farming. And and so now we might grow tomatoes because they look really red when you get them in the supermarket, but they've lost those nutrients. They've lost the taste, you know, just because we've bred it out of them in favor of them looking good, right? Which says a lot about our society. <laughs> no, I, I hear you. I mean, the hydroponic tomatoes that you'll, you know, if you just bit into one uh, from Colorado, say they're, they taste like water um, versus mm -hmm. the... Uh, the tactile texture of a tomato grown in Southern New Jersey, you bite into it and it's almost got like a sandy tactile mm -hmm. thing going on and just so many more layers of flavor. It's incredible. Um, right. And, any, yeah, and that's the idea of terroir, right? Were any of the cultures that you shared meals with um, in your book vegetarians? Um, no. And actually the, the book ended up, being sort of meat heavy. So I apologize to all the vegetarians out there. Um, I hope that I haven't entirely lost you as an audience. Um, maybe I'll convert you, some of you back to eating wild game, but um, no, I mean, in, in Borneo, the, the community that I was with there, they, they're rice, primarily rice farmers, but they do a lot of um, hunting, gathering uh, kind of to supplement their diets uh, because they are so remote. And so they eat a lot of different you know, jungle fern. And one night we had hearts of palm, which requires cutting down an entire palm tree, you know, and it's like these kind of, they almost look like medieval torture devices, these like very spiky layers of the palm tree that get peeled off and you just keep kind of cutting it down. And then there's a layer with a bunch of ants in it and that gets, you know, cut off. And then eventually you get to this, like, I don't know, maybe like three inches of the heart. And that's actually what you eat. Um, so, you know, really kind of beautiful and grotesque in a way that you're, you're cutting down an entire tree for this like delicious core. Um, so, you know, they, they just have so many more plants that they rely on there, um, in terms of food sources, uh, both, you know, 
domesticated, but also they just grow wild and sort of in the semi-domesticated way. So like they will abandon their rice plots after five to seven years. And that plot will for a while become a fishing place because it will, you know, there will be fish living in this old um, paddy pond. And then eventually that will actually fill in with sediment and, you know, grow up into forest again, um, you know, and growing fruits like durian and, and all kinds of things. So um, really beautiful to see that. They do, they do some hunting. We ate, we ate wild boar there. Um, so, which, which for them, wild boar is sort of the everyday food. And if they have a celebration, they might eat domesticated pig as like a special treat, you know, which is very, very opposite to here. I feel like the one like tough crossover from um, maybe native delicacy to uh, Western delicacy is insects. Um, yeah. Will insects take off? Yeah. I mean, I think they're starting to, there's definitely been, you know, almost from the sort of paleo sector or the bodybuilding sector. I mean, there's such a like easy protein. Um, and I think people are realizing that soy protein can be, um, problematic for, for people for various reasons and problematic for, for the rainforest. Um, I'm actually just trying to find the the little statistics in my book, but yeah, most of the world eats insects and we, you know, there was this amazing uh, guy that I found. I'm trying to find um, the spot, but you can find, you can order the book feasting wild and uh, find the exact thing that I'm talking about. But, but there was this amazing writer that I found um, in the kind of 1840s, 1860s maybe. And, and he was advocating eating insects and, and, you know, so even as far back as then, you know, people were trying to get Americans to eat insects for various reasons. And there's definitely something that we just really are kind of averse to it. But, um, you know, I mean, in Mexico, obviously, like people eat uh, grasshoppers. And um, I think definitely there's various indigenous peoples in in North America that still love consuming um, insects. So I could see it taking off. You know, I think that desire for like a new, interesting, trendy food is always going to be there for people. And I think, you know, people are really trying to make insects um, interesting. I don't know. Are you into eating bugs? <laughs> How do you feel about it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've spent a, a fair amount of time down in Mexico now. Um, and, you know, crickets and grasshoppers. And um, if you're not told what they are and you're having a mezcal and mm-hmm. a slice of orange and some crickets or grasshopper ground up um, with spices and herbs, you know, it's it's delicious. And, um, yeah. And then, you know, from the athlete perspective of, uh, readily accessible protein, I know a number of companies are pursuing crickets as, um, an affordable protein source and they're putting them into bars and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, other dietary supplements. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think everyone wants, wants that silver bullet, right? So, I mean, I think some people in that field are, or like, this is going to save everybody. We all just have to start eating bugs and then, you know, climate change will go away and everybody will be happy. Um, and I, I think after researching this book, what I came to is like, it's really about diversity. It's about bringing that diversity back into our diet. So it's not, there's not one thing that's going to save us. It's going to be like this kind of whole scale, scale shift towards recognizing that we can't do things on the same sort of homogenous mass produce scale that we've been doing it and and so if insects is part of that mix that's that's great but i don't think it's going to like 
prevents people from eating hamburgers or, you know, make everyone turn away from meat. I just, I don't see that happening. And, and but I, I could see it becoming more mainstream for sure. As you're sort of zoomed out, reflecting on some of the, the lessons and takeaways, um, what are some other sort of closing thoughts, I guess, of, you know, that you feel like you need to share? Oh man, the closing thoughts. Um, yeah, I mean, first of all, everyone should buy my book. Um, it's really fun. And I, I've been really loving the sort of um, various feedback that I've gotten. So one reviewer was like, you know, she doesn't spend enough time talking about how nature is, um, you know, is kind of this human construct. The idea of the wilderness is, is something that we've created as part of our culture. And then another reviewer was like, she, you know, she spends all this wonderful time talking about wilderness as a, as a human construct. So I loved that they actually had like completely opposite interpretations of my argument. And, and part of my goal in writing this book was to write something that was kind of like fluid and, and nuanced um, just in the way that wild nature is, you know, it's the slippery thing that we can't quite pin down. Um, so beyond just the, you know, blatant self-promotion, which, you know, every author is trying to do right now, cause it's hard to be a writer in a, in this moment. Um, but closing thoughts, I mean, I think it's really about, and which I've also loved witnessing during this quarantine is, um, people are just starting to observe the world outside them a little more, you know, like people are, and I think maybe you talked about this on a previous podcast, but like learning the names of the trees that they pass by every day, you know, the kind of trees and, and observing. I have a friend who's been like watching the ravens on his San Francisco balcony and, and becoming like a naturalist, just like really trying to understand these two ravens that keep coming and visiting him. Um, and so I think, you know, we want everyone to get out in the world, out into the natural world. And yet we're finding like our, you know, trails being overcrowded right now because everybody, that's what they're doing. And so it's such a hard contradiction for people who want to advocate getting closer to nature, but I think it can really even start on a much simpler level of just recognizing sort of that ecology is everywhere. You know, every meal that you eat is a form of ecology. It's an embodiment of all these natural systems come together to, you know, create this plate of food in front of you. Um, and I think starting there will go a long way in helping us to shift, you know, the ways that we relate to the non-human species on this planet. Well, I think that's beautifully said. <laughs> well, thank you. You've had six years to internalize that. <laughs> now you oh, get to man. talk about it at length. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you having such uh, you know interesting, nuanced conversation with me because that that is part of what I wanted to bring with this book is is going a little deeper on some of these questions about you know our desire for wild food and and our embodiment of wildness. Um, and and all of that. So I appreciate it. A hundred percent. And so where can people order the book? The book is available anywhere books are found. Um, I, you know, it's, it's currently number one in both nature writing and gastronomy essays on Amazon, but I really encourage everybody to um, go to their local bookstore because local bookstores are super struggling right now. Um, and I know you all have one nearby somewhere. So call them up request the book. They, it's, um, you know, it's, they really appreciate the orders as well. So that would be, that would be my thing. But if you really can't do that, it's available online as well. Okay. And then, uh, people can find you on your website, which is Gina Ray LC.com spelled, uh, G I N A R A E L C.com. 
What about on the socials? You on Instagram? Yeah. 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 So I'm on Instagram um, at Feasting Wild and on Twitter at Gina Ray LC. So just like my website. Um, So come along. I've been posting lots of fun pics from my my travels around the world. They're not as gorgeous as your photography, I have to admit. But, um, you know, I try a little. (laughs) And and it's also from what I'm reading, at least in the reviews, I don't have a book in my hands yet. You you get personal yeah, we gotta and, get you one. And, and you also open up and you, you talk about personal stories in the book. And it sounds like, you know, we follow you on an emotional whirlwind, not just, uh, numbers and graphs, but, um, traveling around the world yeah. and love and yeah, loss this is, and it's a, the it's whole a deal. Story too, guys. Yeah. There's, there's a very enigmatic character just named the hunter. So, you know, even if you are not interested that, that interested in food or the environment, I think it's, it's worth reading for that steamy romance that's in there. <laughs> um, Perfect. Know. Well, we're near... I, I put it. Sorry, go on. No, no, that's, that's fine. We'll oh. leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, congratulations again. Um, I'll link everything up in the show notes. And thank you for joining us on the show. Awesome. Thank you so much, Andy. It's been really fun chatting. Well, come on, podcast.